So for our scripture reading today, we are going to be doing Malachi 3, 13 through 15. And I'm going to ask that you guys read along with me. So let's begin. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers do not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Good morning. Welcome to FBC. My name is Greg. I'm one of the pastors here at FBC, and we're, good, we're uh, glad to have you with us, uh, I should say, this morning. And we're going to be in Malachi chapter 3, beginning in verse 13 and going through verse 15. Just three verses today, Malachi 13, Malachi 3, 13, 14, and 15. So uh, you can begin making your way to Malachi 3 in your copy of the Scripture or on your device. And while you're doing that, just a couple of quick uh, things I wanted to mention. First of all, next week, uh, next Sunday is the first Sunday of the month. And so as we do uh, every Sunday on the first Sunday of the, month, Sunday of the month, we set aside time to remember the Lord through communion, taking of the bread and the cup together, recognize that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and he rose from the dead. So with that in mind, you're going to want to be prepared for that next week in your home. So to make sure that you've uh, gotten some bread and gotten uh, whatever a cup you want to uh, partake of for that time. We're going to have time during uh, the morning uh, FBC live stream uh, for you to worship God through communion in your homes as we uh, do so for those of us who are here uh, at FBC uh, that morning. So uh, be prepared for that. Make a note of that to be prepared for communion uh, next week. Now, one other announcement I wanted to make, uh, and there's going to be a picture up on your TV screen as I read uh, this uh, announcement. So congratulations on the new arrival in the home of Nick and Tracy Gardini and brothers uh, Malachi, Jackson, and Maverick. And you see that great picture of that family there, their baby boy, Roman Matthew, born on February 3rd, 2020. He weighed in at four pounds, four ounces. He came just a little bit earlier than we expected, and we're thankful for God's care on that uh, family and uh, especially on Roman and on Tracy. So we can thank God uh, for Roman joining us, and uh, God bless uh, you, Gardini family. We're thankful uh, for you being a part of our uh, body of believers. So let's begin. Malachi chapter 3, beginning uh, in verse 15. I'm just going to ask for God's help as we get started. God, we thank you for this morning. We ask, God, as we spend just a few minutes in your word, that you might, by your spirit, uh, allow us to see what we need to see. Allow us to see the truth of your word that you intend for us, Allow us by your spirit to be convicted of sin, to be encouraged in how you are working in our lives. And God, we would pray that as we spend time in your word this morning, you might make us more like Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Malachi chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. All of us have a certain thing that we deal with, a tension, I might call it. Uh, and the tension is this. How do you deal with this in your own life? And you can think about it. And then I'm going to give you a couple of ways uh, that people in our culture and our world have dealt with this tension before. And the tension is this. How do you square what you believe about God with what is going on in your life? What we, what we believe about God, the fancy word we use to say, what do we believe about God? Or how do we describe who God is, what he is like, and what he is doing? The, the fancy word for that is theology. How do we describe God based on what the scripture tells us 
about who he is, what he is like, and what he is doing. That is our theology. And the, the tension we have is what do we do with the fact that sometimes our theology, what we know to be true about God, then we look at our life and the events of the world around us, and there's a tension there. We say, if God is this way, how is this true in my life? If God is this way, how can these events be happening in the world around us? If God is true, then how could this happen to me or to my family member or my co-worker? We have that tension. How do you deal with the reality of what we believe to be true about God and then the realities of our life experience? And, and it goes without saying, that's a tension that everybody experiences from time to time, if not uh, all the time. So here's a couple of ways that people throughout history have dealt with the tension that says, here's what we know to be true about God, and here's what we know about what's going on in my life or the world. How do I square that? Well, the first thing people have done is said, well, I'll just deny that God exists. I don't like this tension between a description of who God is and what's going on in my life, so therefore, I must assume, since I know my perception of my reality is accurate, God must not be true. So that's a very common way to approach this, is I see a tension between the realities of God and my own life, and because of that tension, well, therefore, I must assume God's not true. It would be easier for me, many have said, to assume there's no God than to live in the tension that there is a God, but something doesn't square with that. So that's one way to handle it, and it's a sad way to handle it, but it goes without saying many, many people uh, have uh, done that. A another way of doing it is someone might say, listen, I don't want to deny that God exists, and I don't want to deny that. If for no other reason I have a great sense in who I am that there is more to this life than the material world. There's a sense in many of us, I would say most of us, that there is something spiritual about us as individuals and about uh, the world around us and what God has done. And so we have trouble in this. Why well, can't deny the existence of God because there is something overwhelmingly true that there is something spiritual going on. However, I have trouble squaring the realities of how the Bible describes God and the realities of my life. So what do I do with that? I'm a, a person who might describe myself as spiritual, and yet who God is doesn't square with what I think my life ought to be like. So what a person might do is say this. You know what? The Bible is more of a fable. It's more of a mystical book intended to provide uh, life stories to be a lesson to us that we might learn from them. So really the Bible becomes nothing more than uh, a book of Aesop's fables, of uh, various stories that are intended to communicate life lessons so I could live my life in a way that might be best and might be even considered spiritual. So many people have done that uh, with their lives. Said, well, who, who God is, is, in terms of how the Bible describes him, is difficult to square with real life. So therefore, uh, I think the Bible is more of just a fable book. Uh, one other way, and now there's a lot of different ways you might do this. Uh, another way people have done this is this. They say, listen, no, I believe the Bible is true. And I believe uh, the Bible, God is how the Bible describes him. And I clearly see many times who God is doesn't uh, square with what I think ought to be happening in my life. So therefore, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take what I believe about God and I'm going to put him into a box. And I'm going to take that box and assign that box or that compartment certain times in my life. And I'm going to jump in and do the God thing. And, and that's cool. And then I'm going to jump out and go back to, to real life. So many of us do this. So we go to church or we live stream church in this case. And, and so, okay, I got to do my God thing. So I'll jump into the God box where it makes sense. 
God makes sense at church, or God makes sense when I'm listening to a sermon, or God makes sense when I'm reading my Bible or praying. But now that I've got to go to work, I'm going to leave God over here where he makes sense because God doesn't make sense at work, and God doesn't make sense in my home, and God doesn't make sense in my community. So what we do is we take God and we put him in a box and say, God, stay there. And many, many people do that. Many Christians do that. Uh, by way of warning, and this is just an aside, God doesn't like hanging out in boxes, and he won't stay there long, but keep trying, I guess. Uh, so many of us do that. God doesn't square with reality, so we stick him in a box and say, we'll visit from time uh, to time. So what we want to do is we want to look at the book of Malachi. And so the people of Malachi's day were doing the, doing the same thing. They were trying to deal with the tension. They knew what God was like. They knew what God had said. But then they looked at the realities of their life, and they said, this isn't working out. And we're going to look at how they dealt with the tension between their theology and their life. And so the title of the message today is Everyday Theology. Everyday Theology. The people have a challenge of following God isn't paying off like they thought it would. So what does it mean in the Bible? What does it mean according to the gospel to take my theology from over here and say, what does it mean in my life for what I believe to be true about God to make sense each and every day. Everyday theology is our goal. So let me reread verse 13 again. Uh, here's what it says. God says this to the people of Malachi. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? All right, let's take a, a break here for a moment. So God is telling them, your words have been hard against me. And their response is, we don't understand. Uh, what do you mean our words have been hard against you? We don't understand where you're coming from, God. So let's again understand where these people are coming from. This is just maybe four, maybe 500 years before the birth of Christ. The people of Israel had been kicked out of uh, Israel. They had been taken captivity by the Babylonians. And now some of those people in Israel had been allowed to return to Jerusalem. Uh, they had rebuilt uh, the city walls uh, in the book of Nehemiah. We read about that. They had rebuilt the temple such as it was. It was, it was very humble and almost embarrassingly small and poorly put together. And so they had the temple, and they had the city walls, and they had returned, and they were trying to do things God's ways, and their assumption was, if we do everything God tells us to do, God is going to pour out his blessing on us. And now they had been back in the land, they had rebuilt the walls, they had rebuilt the temple, and as we're going to discover in a minute, they had been trying to live their life the way they thought God wanted, and things weren't working out the way they thought they should. God wasn't showing up the way they expected to. And so now their attitude was turning, saying, look, God doesn't pay off. All right, so this is the situation the people are in. They have sort of returned to God, and now uh, having a relationship with God isn't paying off. So that's what we were talking about before. They were having that tension between, we know what God is like, but he's not doing what we think God is supposed to do. So everyday theology, first thing, verse 13, we need to pay attention to this. What we think matters to God. What we think matters to God. A.W. Tozer, a famous theologian, said it this way, and this is a well-known quote, so you've probably heard it many times before, but this is how he said it, and I think it's, it's very apt to what we're thinking about this morning. What we think about God is the most important thing about us. Think about that for a minute. A.W. Tozer says this, the, what we think about God is the most important thing about us. So we might say it this way, theology, or the understanding of who God is, what he is like, and what he is doing, theology is not a hobby 
for religious nerds. Theology is not a hobby for religious nerds. What we ought to say is this. Our view of God, whatever we think about God, is our theology. And some of you may be saying, well, I don't know what I think about God. So let me explain to you what you think about God. How we live our life best describes what we think about God. Our view of God shows up in how we live our life, and how we live our life expresses what we, what we think about God. So let me draw it out long, uh, in an even longer way. Uh, to try and be more confusing, I think is my goal. Here it is. What we think about God is revealed in how we live. So therefore, how we live is worship. Since what we think about God is most revealed in our day in and day out life, how we live is the most important part of our life that is worship. That is, our, our life is worship. And you say, well, I'm not worshiping all day long. And what we're going to say is this. We are worshiping all day long. The question is who or what? And that's precisely what was going on in the time of the people of Malachi. They had sought to worship the Lord, and he wasn't paying off the way they wanted. And so they were beginning to do things differently to shift their worship through their actions. So theology isn't just a hobby for religious nerds. Theology is revealed. What we think about God is revealed in our day in and day out decisions. In our everyday theology, we must remember what we think matters to God. Look how uh, the chapter or the verse opened. Your words have been hard against me. God was saying about the people of Malachi's day, what you think about me has been harsh. It's, it's been inaccurate in many ways, but it's been harsh and it's been hard. And they're denying that their actions and their words have been harsh. They're saying, how have we spoken against you? What they're saying is, no, look at our statement of theology. Look at our statement of faith. Look at our church charter. Look at, we believe all of the right things. And God is saying this, this isn't about what you say you believe. This is about how your life is being lived. Your life betrays that you don't think I pay off, God would say. Your life betrays that you think something else would pay off better than me. Your life betrays that you think you can have confidence in uh, money, in security, in the military, in the city walls, but you can't have confidence in me. And what God is saying is your worship is revealed in your daily confidence. And the fact is they were, were, weren't worshiping God because they had betrayed God in that their confidence wasn't found in him. Our view of God is revealed in our day in and day out decisions, and our day in and day out decisions are worship. Whatever we're worshiping is that which will inform our daily decisions. A, a quick verse on that in the New Testament, and you can turn with me to James chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. This is what it says there. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them things needed for the body, what good is that? Think about it this way. You're sitting in your homes, and probably shortly after this live stream is over, you're going to be thinking about uh, what you're going to eat for lunch. That is, unless you're not already eating lunch. I don't know what you're doing. But you might say, maybe you've got kids there, and, the, and the, the live stream will end, and your kids will turn to you and say, I'm hungry. What's for lunch? And, and you can try this out on them. You can say this. You know what? I bless upon you a great wish of fullness. 
And your children will say, great, so what's for lunch? Because that doesn't make that doesn't fill their belly. And, and so what James is saying is just simply that. You can, in a religious fashion, all you want, wish blessings on all kinds of people. But how you actually want to treat people is best seen in how you actually treat people. And he's drawing the connection and saying this. That also is the same of God. How you treat God, what you think of God, is most seen not in what you might write down in terms of a list of beliefs, but is most seen in your day-in and day-out life and the decisions we make. James chapter 2, verse 14 says this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, excuse me, but does not have works? Can that faith be saving faith? Can that faith save him? What are you saying this? You can't merely have a good list of theological positions. A person whose faith is in God is moved to worship God. And all theology is everyday theology. God is concerned about what we think about him. What we believe about God shows up in our actions and our decisions. What we believe about God shows up in our values. Think about the last time you sinned, which I know for most of you was probably months and months ago, if not weeks ago. Okay, it was this morning, but that's fine. Think about the last time you sinned. In the moment of sin, what do you believe about God? I mean, your, thought, your theology in that moment is revealed. It's laid bare. Your theology is, here's a number of things we believe about God in the moment of our sin. It shows the weakness of our faith. In the moment of our sin, we don't believe God is near. If God were near, we certainly wouldn't be sinning. Number one, we don't believe God. Number two, we don't believe God is God. If God is the all-powerful creator of the universe, holy and just, sitting on his throne, where do we think we can do whatever we want in rebellion against him? So in our sin, our theology is actually revealed. And James is telling us the same thing. In our decision-making, our theology is revealed. Malachi was saying the same thing to the people of Israel. They were wanting to give up worship of God and worship idols and do their own thing, worship money and worship security, because God wasn't paying off the way they thought he ought to. And we must understand what we think, as described by our actions, matters to God. God is intimately concerned, not necessarily with our statement of faith, but with our statement of faith as revealed by our actions. Okay, let's go back to Malachi chapter 3. Look at verse 13 uh, again. He says, your words have been hard against me. Uh, your words are argumentative or combative. And they would say this, no, God, we're not being combative. We're just telling the truth. Uh, we're not being tr combative. Uh, we're just explaining what happened. Listen, God, you said to obey you and you would be with us. And all we're saying is there's no blessing. Where's the blessing, God? Where's the blessing? Since we have obeyed you, uh, where have you paid off? Uh, we, we rebuilt the temple. Where is uh, the bountiful harvest? We rebuilt the walls. Uh, why are our enemies still ruling over us? Uh, we're seeking to worship you in the temple. And yet many of us are still in poverty. And some people are sick. And some people are dying. Uh, God, where is this great blessing? Where is uh, the return of the glory days of King David and King Solomon? God, we have obeyed you. We're just, saying, we're just saying the facts. You don't pay off. We've obeyed you and you haven't showed up. We have to answer, ask this question. And this is why their words were so harsh to God. Because essentially what they were saying to God was, God only had value in their life 
to the degree that he paid off for them. God and worship of God only had value to the people of Malachi to the degree that he paid off in a day in and day out basis. If God doesn't pay off today, God isn't worth worshiping today. And God is saying that's combative and argumentative for two reasons. Number one, having God alone is payoff enough, the Bible would tell us. And secondly, where did the people of Malachi's day get off deciding they knew how God should pay off for them? They had decided in advance, if I do this, God ought to do this. And God would suggest this, you cannot obligate me through your so-called obedience. What he is calling them to do is seek the better thing, not worship God only when he pays off as they have wanted him to pay off. Worship God because God is worthy of worship and they have the presence of God as promised by the covenant promises of God. And so everything, everyday theology, what we think matters to God. And most importantly, this, what do we think about God in terms of our relationship with him? Are we seeking to get something from God or are we recognizing through the work of Christ, we have God himself? An understanding of who God is through the scripture should inform our hearts. If we have received God, there is nothing more he could give us that is greater than he has already given us. Our the what we think matters to God because God's hope is we will seek the best thing, which is closeness with him and him alone. So our beliefs are not necessarily reflected in what we say. Our beliefs are reflected in the values we display in our decisions that we make day in and day out our actions whether or not our actions describe to others around us that God is who we value not the things of God and we must recognize that God is God and he has an opinion about what we think of him he has an opinion about our thoughts of him and he would move us to seek him and not merely uh, his stuff so uh, what we ought to do before we move to the next section maybe just a quick way of thinking about this we what we think matters to God we have to see the difference between what we say we believe and what our actions actually reveal about what we believe. So let me explain how this works. We, we understand, we could say, this is what we believe about God. We believe God is uh, forgiving. So maybe I'll ask this question. Uh, from a theological standpoint, this is a deeply a difficult theological question you're going to have to grapple with. Are you ready? Okay, put on your big brain. Is God forgiving? Okay, think of your answer. Is God forgiving? I'm looking at Russell over here, seeing he hasn't answered yet. Is God for Yes, right? Do we all agree? God is forgiving. Okay, good. Now, one other quick question to shore up our theological basis of is God forgiving? Um, what about that one person you haven't forgiven? Think of that one person you haven't forgiven. You know who they are, and, and we don't know who they are, but when I say that, what about that one person that you haven't forgiven, or you've said you've forgiven them, but in your heart you still hope they get hit by a bus? Think of that one person. What, who is that one person, okay? Understand this. If we say God is forgiving, and we do not forgive, our theology is God is not forgiving. And there's no other way to say that nicely. If we say God is forgiving, and yet we are unwilling to forgive, our theology is revealed not in what we say about God. Our theology is revealed about what's going on in our heart. 
If God is as forgiving as the Bible says he is, by its very nature, that moves us to forgive others. And, some, and so you're getting uh, really annoyed at me right now. You say, well, that's not fair. No, this is what the, the pattern of the Christian life is designed to be. We see who God is. Then we look at our own heart and say, holy cow, my life doesn't line up with that at all. What do we call that when the Holy Spirit, by his grace, opens our eyes to see something in our life that doesn't line up with who God is? That's called conviction. The Holy Spirit works in us and says, I've been saying God is forgiving all along, but I obviously clearly don't believe in his forgiveness to the degree I ought because I am not forgiving. Why, why if I am not forgiving, does it mean I do not believe God is forgiven? Here's why. Because I only hold a grudge if I think God is holding a grudge against me. I hold a grudge because I think God is holding a grudge against me. Or here's the other way we think about it. I'm holding a grudge because that person sinned worse than I did. Those are the two ways we get out. We say, listen, I'm going to hold a grudge because God is still uh, holding a grudge on me. But our theology says he isn't. The cross of Christ redeems us when we put our faith in Christ, died on the cross, rose again. He forgives us of all our sins. It is cast as far as the east is from the west. It's in the bottom of the ocean. He remembers it no more. Jesus stands at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us over and over and over again. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, no matter what you've done. So there's no grudge. So therefore, the only way I can hold a grudge against this person is if I assume their sin is worse than mine. Now, you might want to take that up with God. And that's exactly, so this is what we do, is we say, wait, my theology is all messed up. I have a terrible theology of forgiveness. Not about what I would say is true about God's forgiveness, but how my heart is actually dealing with God's forgiveness. So what do we do that when we discover our theology is wrong? We repent. That's all that is. And we do this day in and day out. God, my heart is completely uh, messed up here. I am totally sideways on this issue. I've got a theology I say over here, but it's not true in my heart. God, I need you to forgive me, and I need you to change my heart. That's just simply repentance. And that becomes the habit of the Christian life. We read the scripture and we discover something amazing about God. The Holy Spirit works in our life and we look at our heart and realize we don't actually believe it. And we then repent and ask God to change our hearts. Everyday theology, what we matters or what we think matters to God. And what we think is revealed not in what we say about God, but in how we live our lives day in and day out. Everyday theology, what we think uh, matters to God. Secondly, everyday theology, here's the question, does God pay off? Does God pay off? Let me read verse 14 again. You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking in mourning before the Lord of hosts? We're going to stop there. In the military, they have a, a review after a uh, a military exercise has been done or a military mission has been done. And corporate America has also adopted this and it's called an AAR or an after action review an AAR. And uh, most studies show that most corporations and businesses don't do ac after action reviews very well. And in fact, the military uh, does it a little bit better maybe than corporate America does. But anyway, the point is this an after action review says, uh, here was the mission. Uh, here's what we did. Did it work? What should we continue doing? What should we improve, do a little bit better? And what are those things we should stop doing totally? And so after each mission, there's an after action review to review what ought to 
be done more, what ought to be improved, and then what are those things that ought to be uh, removed. And so the people of Israel in Malachi's day had returned to the land, and they had begun worshiping God. He said they were keeping charge, meaning they had appointed Levites, and they were going to the temple. And they were trying to do the temple worship to the best degree that they could in the difficult times they were. It also says they were walking around mourning, sort of sackcloth and ashes, seeking the Lord's favor, uh, repenting and mourning and, and doing, well, if we, we lower ourselves and abase ourselves, maybe God will, will hear us. And so they had done this. It doesn't really say how long they had done it. And now they were doing an after-action review. We opened up the temple. We worshiped God the way he said he did, uh, told us to. We put on sackcloth. We threw ashes on our heads. We moped around. We didn't drink wine. Uh, we did all the things you're supposed to do. And here's what their after-action review was. It is vain to serve God. Everyday theology, we have to confront this position, which is a default to every human heart. Does God pay off? And every, every one of us has to ask this question. Does God pay off? It is an error, we must understand, to think there is something better from God than God himself. That is what we have to confront. It is an error of theology in our mind to think there, think there is something better from God than God himself. And that's what was wrong here in the people of Israel. They were seeking not God. They were seeking whatever levers they had to work with God to get God to give them his stuff. And what we must understand when we ask this question, does God pay off? The answer is, well, what is the payoff we're hoping for? The best thing God can give us through a relationship with him, through Jesus Christ, is God himself. Not his money, not his security, not his food. Not a family, not a car, not a house. The best thing God has to give us is God himself. And the mistake we make in our everyday theology is we think there is something better from God than actually having God. So these folks were repenting and they were serving God, but there was no payoff. And their question is, where's the blessing? Where's the profit in serving God? Where's the good stuff that God has uh, to offer? And so we have two sources of theology that's revealed here. We have one source of theology, which is God's word. And God's word says God is good. God cares deeply for his people. God's word said God, he provides for his people. God's word says that in spite of our rebellion and our rejection of him and his ways, he sent his son to die for us on the cross to give us forgiveness. And his son rose from the dead so that through faith we could live with God Forever, And so our source material, the scripture tells us God is good and kind and gracious and holy and just and righteous. There's another source material. The other source material for seeking to understand God is our own life experience. And that's where the people of Malachi's day were getting their information about God. They said this, if God is good, he'll get rid of the Babylonians. And if God is good, all of our crops will grow lots of crops. If God is good, our sheep won't die. If God is good, we'll have lots of children. If God is good, we'll be wealthy. We'll have a home for the winter and a home for the summer. If God is good, here is what must be. Therefore, since these things aren't happening, God is not good. And they have two places they can go to find out if God is good. His word or their life experience. And their life experience was telling them God wasn't good. So therefore, they said God is not good. 
if we are going to determine God is good based on our experience with him in our life, then that means we have determined we know best what God ought to be doing. If you know best what God ought to be doing, what does that mean about you? It means you're God. And you don't need God to work in your life. You can handle your own business. I hate to break it to you. You're not God. But that's exactly what we do when we predetermine if God is who he says he is, he must do the following things for me. We have moved ourselves onto his throne and determined what God must do. And then we ask this question, does God pay off? Well, does God pay off? Let's look over in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. I would suggest, based on the truth of the word of God, God pays off more than we could ever imagine. However, we need to have the scripture defined for us what that looks like. Here's what it says in 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, And a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And and Peter here is quoting from Psalm chapter 90, verse 4. He's uh, using that psalm to remind us that God's approach to the days and years of our life are not the same as our approach. For us, any time is good. When's the best time for the Lord to return and usher in his kingdom? Well, the answer for us is when? Right now. When is the answer for God? Precisely when he means to return, not a moment earlier and not a moment later. And we must understand, for God, a year or a thousand years is the same. He exists in eternity. So whether or not it's a year from now or a thousand years from now, for God, it's all the same. And we must recognize that God will fulfill all of his promises precisely when he means to fulfill all of his promises. And so God does pay off because we will receive all of God for all of time. The when of when that starts is up to him, not us. So in the waiting, we have to endure. But enduring is difficult, and so we... Our theology, our everyday theology gets messed up. In the waiting, we say, well, God is a long far off. And so therefore, since I have this big bill, since uh, coronavirus, since uh, the economy is falling apart, since uh, the church isn't meeting, uh, whatever it is in your life, since these things are true, God, therefore, must not pay off. And that's a, a theology of life experience instead of understanding who God is uh, from His word. Does God pay off? The intended payoff for seeking God is actually closeness with God himself. Look how David says it in Psalm 122, a song of ascent, meaning this song was sung as they went to the temple to worship the Lord. It says this, Psalm 122, verse 1. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. So David was excited to be able to go to the house of the Lord because for David, that was the place where he encountered God through worship. He was excited in his life just to have the opportunity to worship and engage with the Lord through the scripture and through songs and through prayer. The payoff for David for seeking the Lord 
was the Lord himself. And the only way for us to have access to the Lord himself is if all of our sin is washed away by the cross. So we seek the Lord not because we sought him first, but instead because he sought us first. He sent Jesus to die on the cross that we might receive forgiveness of sins when we believe in him. And Jesus rose from the dead so that all who are in him would live with God forever. And the payoff for a relationship with God is life with God beginning now, but experienced most profoundly in the future in glory with God forever. So the intended payoff for seeking God is closeness with God. Maybe we could ask it this way. What is it you hope to get out of being a Christian? What is it you hope to get out of your relationship with the Lord? Let me give you some suggestions of things that many people have sought the Lord for uh, throughout the years. Uh, I hope to get out of the Lord. Since I'm a Christian, I hope I have kids that grow up and believe in God. Uh, Because I'm a Christian, I hope to have a strong marriage. Uh, Because I'm a Christian, I hope that means my business is successful. Because I am seeking the Lord, I hope to avoid uh, injury or illness. Uh, Because I'm a Christian, I hope that I never have a lack of money. What I hope to get out of the Lord is a sense of peace and security for all of my life. Uh, Because I'm a Christian and because I hope all the people around me are Christians, I hope that the country I live in will have the same values that I have. Are any of these things bad? Is it bad to want children to seek the Lord? No. Is it bad to want a a great marriage? Absolutely not. Is it bad to want a successful business or financial resources or a country seeking the Lord? Are any of these things bad? Absolutely not. But the gain of the Christian life is Jesus. The gain of the Christian life is Jesus. The intended theology of the Christian life is this. Were I to lose all things, but knowing God, I still have Jesus, my Christian life has still been profitable beyond all measure. We are able to worship God more profoundly with a fuller heart, with clearer eyes, when we begin to remove the things that must be true for God to be God, and instead determine the payoff of the Christian life is Christ himself. What we gain from following Jesus is Jesus. And that is enough. In fact, it's more than enough. Everyday theology, does God pay off? The tension we experience is God doesn't always pay off the way we want him to. But the scripture is clear. God pays off because we gain Christ. All right, let's continue back to Malachi. Malachi chapter 3, verse 15. This is what the people said. They were continuing their complaint against God. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So on the one hand, they said, look, God isn't paying off for us. On the other hand, other people are doing things not seeking the Lord, and it's paying off for them. So everyday theology, what we think matters to God. Secondly, does God pay off? And finally, do other things pay off better? When you think of investment losses, there's a number of ways you can have an investment loss. Like, for example, my understanding is the stock market might have reduced a little bit over the last week or two. So anybody who owns any securities on the stock market have experienced 
uh, a loss in the value of their holdings. However, they may not have actually experienced an actual loss because those holdings may improve someday in the future. The actual loss occurs, of course, occurs when you sell those securities. Another way of losing uh, money is inflation. You, you take 100 bucks, you store it in your mattress. 100 years from now, that 100 bucks doesn't buy you what you thought you uh, could buy with 100 bucks. So you experience a loss there. But here's another loss. You have some money to invest, and so you invest it over here. Maybe you put it in the bank, and you earn uh, 1% interest, maybe, if you're lucky, right? And during the time while you put that money in the bank, you had an opportunity to invest in a piece of real estate that gained 20%. So you didn't actually lose any money. You gained 1% in your bank account. However, since you didn't invest in this great real estate opportunity, you, were, you experienced an opportunity lost. I could have gained 20%. I only gained 1%, so it feels like I lost 19%. And this is what was happening to the people of Israel. They said, okay, we're seeking the Lord. We've got the temple. We've got the walls. I mean, it's not bad. We're not in prison. But it seems like the people who aren't seeking the Lord... They're blessed. Look what it says. The arrogant are blessed. Evildoers prosper even when they disobey God. They test God and they escape. And so their thinking was this. What's the point of serving God? It seems to pay off better to reject God and seek our own ways. Everyday theology. Here's the question. Do other things pay off better? And this is what we have to recognize from the scripture. It is an error to think that life without God is better than life with God. It is an error to think, regardless of what our experience is, that life without God is better than life with God. And I want to show you an Old Testament story that reflects this. This is in Jeremiah chapter 44, verse 15. I'm going to read it, but I've got to set up the story for you. It should only take me an hour or so. This is a fantastic story. It won't take me that long. Here's what was going on. The Babylonians had taken a bunch of people captive. And the people who were left in Israel were feeling exposed. They're, they were worried that they were going to be invaded, maybe again by the Babylonians or by the Assyrians or some other uh, force. And so they, they came to Jeremiah and they said this. Hey, Jeremiah, could you ask God a question for us? Jeremiah said, yeah, sure, whatever. What you got? And they said, could you ask God if we should flee to Egypt and go to Egypt? Because we think it would be safer in Egypt than here. Could you ask God that question? Jeremiah said, yeah, sure, I'll ask him. And, but, but what's the point of asking him? You're not going to listen to him anyway. And they said, no, we promise. We promise. We'll do whatever God says. Okay, so Jeremiah goes away. Ten days later, he comes back with the answer. And he says this, do not flee to Egypt. If you flee to Egypt, whatever you're afraid of here will happen to you in Egypt. So if you're afraid of pestilence, that'll happen there. If you're afraid of invasion, that'll happen there. If you're afraid of um, a locust, that'll happen there. If you're afraid of... Uh, whatever you're afraid of, when you go to Egypt, uh, you'll, that will happen there. Uh, one of them was probably afraid of the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, and he showed up there. And none of you get that joke. But um, do you get that joke, Russ? Okay, so at least one of us got it here. All right, moving on. So they said, whatever happens to you, if you flee God to Egypt, whatever you're afraid of will happen there. And, of course, the people answered this. They said, we're going to Egypt. Don't be stupid, uh, Jeremiah. Staying in Israel is a terrible idea. So they flee to Egypt because life had gotten so bad in Israel. And so Jeremiah goes down to them, and this is what uh, he says to them. This is Jeremiah 44, verse 15. All the men who knew that their wives had made offerings to other gods, and all the women who stood by a great assembly, all the people who lived in Pathros in the land of Egypt, because they had fled to Egypt, 
they answered Jeremiah this way. As for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you, but we will do everything that we have vowed. We will make offerings to the queen of heaven and we will pour out drink offerings to her as we did both we and our fathers, our kings and our officials in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food and we prospered and we saw no disaster. But since we left off making offerings to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have, excuse me, lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. And the women said this, when we made offerings to the queen of heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, was it without our husband's approval that we made cakes for her, bearing her image and poured out drink offerings to her? This is what the people of Israel were saying. When we stopped worshiping idols, everything bad happened to us. When we sought the Lord, everything bad happened to us. So the problem is we were trying to worship the wrong thing. It pays off better to worship the queen of heaven, they're saying, than to worship the Lord. And this is what's so rough about their theology. Here's the thing. While they were worshiping idolatries, while they were worshiping the queen of heaven, while they were experiencing all the benefits and prosperity that they were experiencing, it wasn't because they were worshiping the queen of heaven. It was because God stayed his hand. If you read first and second Kings and first and second Chronicles, and you read Jeremiah, you will see that God over and over and over again, withheld his hand of judgment to give them opportunity to respond. And so God, in his grace, withheld his hand, and what they then did was gave credit for their prosperity to a demon. So what they said is, serving God isn't paying off the way I think it should, because I know what good timing is, I know what good payoff is, and the queen of heaven seems to have a better handle on that than God himself does. Do other things pay off better? Do we think our life experience is the best source for our theology? Because we look around the world at us. It's not hard to see. You could throw a rock and hit them. Bad people have lots of good things happening to them. And we know really good people who are suffering. And we have to say, if we have any honesty in this at all, God, where are you in this? But we must recognize good theology comes from scripture that says this. God is the payoff for seeking the Lord. And there will be a day when those who seek him through Christ will receive him fully and completely, even though that day may not be today. Here's the issue. What do we think about God? And we say, what do I need today? Many of us are thinking, here's what we need God to do. We need God to open the economy back up. We need restaurants open, businesses functioning, schools rocking it out. We need, that's what we need. We need the coronavirus gone. We need this happening and we need it today. So we know very clearly in our life what must be. God also knows very clearly in our life what must be. The issue for God is not what do what we need today or what do we need in the next five minutes. The question for God is this, and we're going to cover this in more detail next week. What is good for us on that day? Which day is that day? The day we stand in the presence of the Lord. All of the the work that God is doing in your life and my life, in the community around us, in the body of believers at FBC, 
Everything that God is doing in and among us is intended to prepare us most fully for the greatest blessing, not today, but on that day, the day we stand before the Lord. If we had it our way, we'd have God pay off in the next five minutes. And what God is saying is, no, 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 I've got a better idea. I want my payoff for you to be most profoundly seen on the day you stand before me. And if you're like me, you say, when is that? That would be great if it were today. And God says it will occur precisely when the time is absolutely perfect. And then we would ask this, why in the world would you wait? And remember what it said in 2 Peter, that just a few more might repent and believe. That just a few more might hear the gospel and say, yes, Lord, forgive me that I might experience your blessing on that day. The question we must ask ourselves as believers, are we willing to delay the true payoff for our faith for that day that God might linger another day or two, another year or two, another millennia or two, that maybe one more person might put their faith in Jesus? Our prayer should be that we would want. We want to prosper now in this broken world. God, on the other hand, wants us to prosper then in the kingdom that will never end. Everyday theology, what, what we think matters to God, especially as displayed in our day in and day out life. I'm just going to ask uh, one quick question on this point, uh, and, and you're not going to like it, but that's my gift to you. What, <clears throat> excuse me, what if somebody in your life, maybe a non-believer or a believer, they had to write down everything that was true about God, but the only data they could use is observing your life for the last week. If, if the only data an outside observer could use for what is true about, they don't get to use a Bible, all they can do is say, this person believes in God, this person follows God, so observe their life for one week, and now write down everything that is true about God as observed in that person's life. If your life is like mine, you're going to look back and say, maybe there's some things I need to repent of. Maybe there's some things I need to turn over to God and stop believing that good theology is different than theology lived every day. Everyday theology, what we think matters to God as demonstrated in how we live our life in a day in and day out basis. Everyday theology, does God pay off? Uh, dishonesty here doesn't do you or anybody else any good. We need to confront our disappointment with God. We need to be willing to admit those places in our life where we say, God, you did not show up the way you ought to have showed up. We need to confront our disappointment with God. We see this in the Psalms of lament over and over and over again. It does us no good to pretend everything's cool. It does us great good to admit, God, I am disappointed with you here, and I know the wrong one isn't you. And the way we need to confront that in repentance is recognize, are we going to form our theology about whether or not God is good from our life experience, or are we going to form our theology about God's goodness from the truth of his word, especially the word that tells us Jesus hung on the cross for our forgiveness? Everyday theology does God pay off. Finally, do other things pay off better? Quick question that we might think about. What are we afraid of missing out on? What are we afraid we're going to miss out on in life by following the Lord? What are we going to afraid we're going to miss out on? We need to understand that there is not a thing, a person, a relationship, anything in this world that is better than God. God is better, and that day that he's preparing us for 
is better. Eternity seems like a long way away, but it's coming sooner than we think, and there is no better payoff than God. Everyday theology, theology, what we think matters to God, does God pay off? Do other things pay off better?